Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 1st, 2015, and my guest is Noah Smith of Stony Brook University. He has a regular column at Bloomberg View and blogs at No Opinion. Noah, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Well, we're going to talk today about a number of issues related to economic philosophy and methodology you've written on and that you and I have disagreed on uh, in, in Twitter, Twitter, and a number of people suggested we should have an Econ Talk episode on it, so this should be fun. I want to start with the role of ideology in economics. Do you think it plays a role in economic policy debates among academic economists, and do you think it should? I mean, sure it does. You know, um, we don't always know exactly what policies work. We don't always know which of the evidence is right, things like that. And so you're going to have to rely on priors a lot. And people a lot of times get their priors from what they want to be true, wishful thinking, which is really just, I think, what ideology is. And so obviously it's it's out there. It's playing a role. Um, bias exists. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to try to claim it doesn't. It's obviously big. And, and I think in the in the media, it's more than in the halls of academia. It's still there in academia. But in the media, you get more of it because the people who really are, are strongly ideological and really want to push a point of view are more likely to go to the media than people who just want to, you know, try to assess the facts as, as neutrally as they can. Those people are probably a little less naturally drawn to the to the spotlight. And of course, they get rewarded uh, if you're I think if you're more ideological, you're more likely to be chosen to be to get that spotlight than if you're kind of. Uh, a mere truth seeker. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so there's, you know, there's politicians who have an agenda. There's very ideological people out there. And then there's just normal people who have, you know, confirmation bias. And they hear something that that sort of um, an, an economics media person or whoever saying something that supports what they what they want to be true. And they and they want to trust that person and believe them more than someone who says the opposite. So you've got huge incentives. um you know, for ideological people to get the spotlight. And my listeners are pretty aware what my biases are. I'm going to lay them out. I'm going to invite you to do to do the same, just as a prelude to the rest of the conversation. Uh, I am a free marketer. I call myself a classical liberal, which means I believe in limited government, uh, personal responsibility. I'm not an anarchist. I think government has a role to play, but it's much, much smaller than the role that the government plays in the United States in our economy or in our daily lives. I have another ideological bias, though, as I prepared for this uh, conversation that I want to confess. I think I don't think it'll be a surprise to listeners, but I want to get it on the table for you to think about, and you can respond to it with your own uh, position on these issues. I realize it's I'm very prone to believe that people respond to incentives. I'm very. So this, I would call this a method. This is not a, a philosophical ideology or a political ideology. It's a methodological ideology. Uh, I'm prone to believe that incentives are important, that people respond to them, in particular non-monetary incentives, not just money. And along with that, I have a strong belief in the power of emergent order, that a lot of problems get solved by individuals either deliberately working voluntarily together or sometimes not in any planned way, but that market forces or incentives push them to to solve those problems. Of course, I'm aware that there are many problems where that doesn't work very well, uh, environmental issues being an obvious example. But I have a strong bias or ideology or methodological belief that incentives are very uh, powerful. And of course, they can be counterproductive for achieving certain ends if they're set said poorly. So that's uh, my take. And I think, and I just would also add before turning it over to you that when I was younger, uh, meaning I'm 61, when I was say in my 30s or 40s, nothing made me madder than being identified as a conservative economist. First of all, I'm not very conservative. I'm, I'm much more of a, of a free market or a libertarian or classical liberal, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but second of all, I hated the idea that 
that somehow I could be labeled, that, that my views would be then well-known and that I was just some rigid uh, ideologue. But I've come to embrace the reality that I think I am, to some extent, an ideologue. I have priors about how the world works. They can come from a lot of places. They can come from empirical evidence, of course. But I think a lot of it is complicated, not easily uh, justified uh, to an objective observer. And uh, I think it's important to admit that so that when people who want to trust me or not trust me, they should know uh, just how much salt, how many grains of salt they should uh, take my uh, my positions up with. Okay, so your turn. How would you describe yourself? All right. Well, well, first of all, before I do that, I don't really think that thing about incentives mattering and emergent order and things like that is really, I wouldn't even call that an ideology myself. I mean, you know, I, I have strong priors that differential equations can accurately predict the motions of heavenly bodies, but I wouldn't call that an ideology. That's just sort of an assumption, a prior about what kind of, you know, scientific things really predict the world and explain the world. Well, I'm going to come back and to I, that. So, I'll come back to justify why I think it's a it's a it's an important. Even though I like to think that what you're saying is true, I'm not as I'm not as convinced. But go ahead, I take your point. Right. Well, I mean, you know, because I think that. Uh, Incentives matter a lot too, you know. I mean, obvious. That's pretty obvious to me. And uh, and lots of things seem emergent. At least we might as well describe them that way sometimes. Um, and uh, in terms of ideology, you know, I, I sort of I think of myself as a pragmatist. I uh, I don't I don't have a very self consistent, well defined ideology to myself. I can't really. You know, I think of myself as a human. You know, I have these moral instincts. You know, I think, oh, well, you know, this this is too much of a restriction on individual liberty, and I don't like that. And then in some other case, I'll think, oh, look at these poor people, you know, we, we've got to have the government do something to help those poor people. And I, there's not necessarily a rhyme or reason to that. It's just sometimes I, I have one instinct and sometimes I have the other. And, you know, I think of those moral instincts as sort of the primitive, primal, basic elements of morality, and they don't always work. They don't always form a self-consistent whole. Now, you know, when I uh, when I look at what really works for nations, what I think looks good for nations, you know, I think the rich countries of the world are all doing pretty well. You know, the United States is a great place to live. Canada, Japan, France, Germany, uh, Singapore. Um, I don't really know as much about Singapore, but these are all really good places to live. Every place I've seen is good. And there's, you know, there's some small taste differences. I mean, life in France is not going to be quite like life in Japan, but they're all doing pretty dang good. And, um, and, you know, I mean, um, maybe a radical overhaul, uh, where we dramatically decrease the size of government would be even better. And maybe some country will try that, you know, I'm for experimentation. Maybe someone will try that, but, so far, all the countries we see with these great qualities of life, these very successful countries, all have big government in them. And to me, that says that we should at least be pretty cautious before we we toss out big government completely. You know, and these, you view that you view that as a pragmatic experiment. conclusion. Yeah, pragmatic conclusion. I mean, you know, be careful. Cross the river by feeling for the stones. Uh, you know, go with what works and tweak it a little bit in the direction you like. And don't just launch on a radical experiment. I mean, that's what got us into trouble with communism. These people came up with a theory about how everything could be so much better. And it was just a calamity. And um, it was the radicalness of it and the, the huge break and radical departure from what's worked in the past. Um, maybe that makes me a Burkean. I, I haven't read Burke, but scary thought that the other day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I think it, <laughs> so it might. Maybe, it might. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there's so much we don't know that we better be careful. You know, we uh, we only have knowledge about the little bubble of the world close to us. You know, the little, uh, you know, epsilon ball right around us. Um, huge experiments are more likely to fail than succeed. So maybe some small countries who do them first or maybe some country in an extreme situation can be pushed to do that experiment. It's like medicine. You know, we don't just go doing crazy medical experiments on human beings because, you know, most of the time you're just going to kill someone. Once in a while, you'll find some cure for something, but most of the time it's going to be horrible. So I, I think of it in a similar way. Okay, so let me, this is sort of off topic in a way, because now we've gotten into the question of what, how, what's the appropriate role for government, especially uh, 
when we're thinking about right. small changes versus large changes, but it's really interesting. So I, I, want, I want to comment on that. So I, I think people on my side of the fence, uh, the free market types, and as well as conservatives, uh, I think failed to notice uh, what you've pointed out, which I think is really important, which is life's pretty good in America, say, where you hear people complaining that it's all going to hell in a handbasket uh, and how horrible the country is and we, we, we got to change things because it's awful. And I agree with you that it's basically pretty good. And in particular, I'd agree with you that it's it's really good for me uh, and it's really good for my kids. So my kids who grew up in a house of educated people with lots of books and limited access to television devices until they get older and their dad and mom got worn down a little bit. My kids have a pretty good shot at economic success, you know, true happiness, moral success. Those are different questions. But in terms of just thriving materially, I think my kids will do well, even in an economy where government is 40 plus percent uh, of GDP were measured across uh, federal, state and local, which is not much different from France or the UK or Germany or the places you also mentioned. So I think that's true. And I think the people who bemoan the size of government often ignore that that very uncomfortable un- fact <laughs> that despite yeah, what, right. if you think if you think government's the part of the problem and not part of the solution, you do have to accept the you do have to deal with the fact that it's going pretty well. So my my response to that is is I agree with that part. I think you're right. I think that should give pause to people who want smaller government. Uh, I think there are two things though. I think that are still worrisome. One, I would call the the boiling the frog problem, that it's true that it's going pretty well right now, but something akin to Hayek's road to serfdom, which I think has been uh, misunderstood, is is saying we're going to be communists uh, because we have a big government or we're going to be fascist. It isn't what he said. He said we have to be – it was a warning bell. And I think the people who, like myself who are thoughtful about – who try to be thoughtful at least about the size of government and the fact that the economy is going pretty well, I think there's a worry that – it's going well now, but if, if government continues to get bigger, there, there will come a point where it's not as sustainable. And when we look at countries on your list, such as Western Europe or Japan, we do see some very disturbing signs in the labor market in particular for young people who are struggling to get access to this uh, engine of prosperity that, that you and I are doing okay on or our kids might do okay on. The other point I'd mention is that well, it's okay for my kids, but there are a lot of people's kids I don't think are doing very well. They're handicapped by a really lousy school system. They're handicapped, and we'll come back to this. I want to talk about it in more detail because you've written about it. They're handicapped by a minimum wage that I think makes it harder for them to get experience. Doesn't stop my kids. My kids' market value is already well above the minimum wage. As 18 and 19-year-olds, they know Excel. One of my kids knows Excel, so he got a job with a great set of learning and opportunities because he was good at math. And so for my kids, it works fine because they're not fighting at the $9, $7 an hour slot. But for the people whose skills are mediocre, they're handicapped by the fact that they don't have good skills. They're handicapped by the fact that their labor market opportunities are cut off by, I believe, a, a minimum wage that makes them too expensive to hire relative to their skills. So when I decry the size of government, I'm worried about uh, people who are less skilled, who have fewer chances, fewer connections, and their life's not so good. And I worry about how that's going to change over the next 10, 20, and 30 years if government uh, continues to make some bad policy mistakes. What are your thoughts on that response? Well, first, I, uh, I'm pleasantly surprised that the, the more libertarian person was the first to bring up inequality. Um, that's kind of cool. But anyway, I, I completely agree. I, you know, I think a lot of people in America are not doing well, or at least not as well as they'd like. You know, they have a better standard of living than Americans 200 years ago, but that may not be enough to make them happy. It may not resonate. They may have had higher expectations, and they have problems that certainly didn't exist 200 years ago, you know, like uh, heroin or, or something like that, uh, family breakdown. And so I, I, I completely um, agree, and I hear you on this. And... I think that, you know, I, I, I think about this. Um, I'm not a huge fan of minimum wage. I think that something like wage subsidies, uh, which Jim Petakoukas of AI has been pushing and I've been pushing for, and is similar to the EITC. That, Just the uh, earned income tax credit. That's right. 
uh, you know, this third way compromise, I think uh, Milton Friedman was a big advocate of negative income tax and, uh, and you know, Bill Clinton pushed it as well. I think that's the, the sort of best short-term measure for these people in the long-term. Um, there's lots of institutional tweaks I think we need to look at. I think there's things we don't understand yet about how, um, you know, how things like corporate ownership and globalization and these big changes may have changed the job environment for people and may have resulted in inequality, may have made some rigidities in our system that were previously tolerable, now sort of more severe. Um, I, and so I think that it's a, it's a complex, difficult problem that we're dealing with, and I don't have simple, easy answers. My only simple, easy answer is kind of the EITC wage subsidy increase, and I think it's, it's mainly a stopgap. So let's go back to the ideology. Uh, you described yourself as a pragmatist. What does that mean to you? The, you it, the way I would take it is you, you, you go on a case-by-case -case basis. You look at what works here, what works there. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, that's right. Case-by-case. Case. So I think that's unusual, but I don't think it's rare, right? I think there are economists who, who are not heavily ideological, who uh, would describe themselves even as scientists – uh, as I think one econ talk guest said, you know, I do have an ideology, but I just – I take that hat off when I do science. And some people maybe – I don't think that's possible. That was uh, – that's the problem I think with that view. And there may be people, and you may be one of them, who basically just look at what's effective. So let's, let's turn to the question of, of uh, science because you and I have written some um, – had some fun exchanges back and forth on Twitter. So my – my claim is that economics isn't much of a science in the way that people in everyday English uh, think about it. I'm not going to get into a heavy philosophical debate about what a science is, but what I what I mean what I mean when I say economics is a science, it doesn't produce reliable empirical relationships that can be used as the basis uh, for economic policy. Uh, so, do you agree with that? And if not, uh, why not? Well. Um when you talk about science, it's really a question, and I am going to get into the philosophy here briefly. It's a question of how do you know how the world works? And in, uh, in lab sciences, you do experiments and you control a bunch of stuff with experiments. And usually in economics, we can't do that. Some, a few times we can, and then we get really, really good results. But um, usually you cannot. Uh, and... In, and, you know, of course, you can just look at correlations and you can say, well, look, that, you know, people uh, who got this kind of job ended up uh, doing better in the economy than this or, or any any billion, millions and billions or, or this kind of policy happened. And then also the economy did worse at that time. So maybe that policy is bad. And then between those, you have this this approach of natural experiments, also called quasi experiments. And this has become much more popular recently. You can often exploit quirks of how policies happen, of the real-world um, policymaking process to, to get clean identification, right? And there's, there's stuff that you can't control in a natural experiment that you can control in a lab. And most importantly, the most important difference is that with natural experiments, you can't replicate them. You can't repeat them and do them again, you know, because each natural experiment only happens once. So it's not as good as lab science, but it is better than simply looking at correlations. Um, and this is, this is just exploding in the economics profession, this way of evaluating policies. And a lot of people have complained about it. Some of the advocates for this type of approach have been a little you know, zealous and messianic in their advocacy. But I think most people agree at this point that what they call the credibility revolution, which is really just these natural experiments, uh, has really been a huge boon to our ability to understand the effects of policy. And, so, yeah. Let's take an example of that uh, so that listeners have a better idea what, what we're talking about. And we had Joshua Angrist on the program a, a few months back. And he's one of the, I'd say he's the, one, of, one of the two or three most outspoken advocates in favor of of this and, and a champion of what you've called the credibility revolution. So just to clarify things, you know, I was trained a lot 
earlier than you were. And I don't mean in the morning. Uh, I, got, <laughs> I got my PhD in 19. I didn't get up. I tried to schedule afternoon classes as, as many of us d- did. I, I went uh, to macro at like 730 in the morning and I'm still mad at Michigan about this. So. <laughs> well, and you probably anyway. paid a terrible price for it. Your macro probably just isn't as good as it could have been if you take it at a civilized hour. But um, certainly not. <laughs> I was trained in the late 70s and uh, my... Uh, my econometrics professor was Arnold Zellner, and I was taught all the standard techniques of the day, and that was a long time ago. There have been some improvements, uh, but I wonder, and of course there are many skeptics on this, how effective those improvements can be have been. So when we say a natural experiment, I'm going to give two examples, okay, and, and then you can see if I'm tell me if I'm on the right track. So one would be one that was exploited by uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in their book, A Monetary History of the United States. So they're looking at inflation uh, during the Civil War, and they there there comes a point in the Civil War where the printing there's rampant there's high inflation in the in the South in the Confederacy, and then the printing press in the Southern uh, states, the Confederacy gets overrun by the uh, Union Army, so they can't print money anymore, and inflation stops. So that's a that's one kind of natural experiment, a dramatic uh, change in the policy regime that allows you to be pretty sure, can't be 100% sure, that what follows from that is caused by that. There's still uncertainty about that, of course. The second would be a state uh, increases its minimum wage, but neighboring states don't. And I might have uh, towns that are near the border of the states that change its wage, and I can look and see how the labor markets in those towns did to compared to towns that were nearby. So we might think of them as being in the same labor market or having roughly similar skills, and yet only on in one side of the border is there a policy change. Is that are those two are those good examples? Um, those are probably good examples. You know, depending on how they're done. Um, there are, right, that's right. So you have, um, your diff and diff approach, you have your regression discontinuity design, and these are some of the standard methods for dealing with, with natural experiments. I, um, you know, I've never actually read the monetary history and didn't know that example about the civil war, but that's, that's really interesting. That's kind of cool. I think it's true. I, I read it a long time ago and I have to confess, even though I went to the university of Chicago, I have not read the entire book. So I may be remembering that Mad. incorrectly or remembering, I, I'm probably remembering it <laughs> secondhand. Go ahead. <laughs> right. Well, you know, so, so that's exactly that kind of thing. Um, natural experiments are very hard to find in macroeconomics. They're extremely hard to find. Uh, Chris Sims wrote a reply to Angrist where he gave um, reasons why one of the most popular things that people think is a natural experiment, the, uh, the Romer and Romer paper about um, about the Fed and monetary policy changes, why that might not really be a natural experiment, I think Sims is very convincing. Basically, with macro, you don't have a lot of these boundaries where the policy is working in some places and not working in other places. You just have this, because it's macro, it's kind of global. And that can even be true when you look between countries. You know, there's a lot of um, linkages between countries. So it's just extremely hard to find these clean natural experiments in macro. And that's why I think macro is always going to be more of the domain of priors than, um, you know, what we might call micro. And in fact, that's almost the definition of macro versus micro. Macro is almost defined by the places where we have worse data. And that's why I think you see ideology start to play a larger role because it's one of the things that determines people's priors. You start to see it play a larger role in debates, uh, certainly in the public sphere, because you can't just point to some of these clear natural experiments and say, well, look, we know this because this. Here's the evidence, very clean identification here. Um, you know, several different natural experiments, all showing the same thing. So we know what works and what doesn't. You can basically not do that in macro very, very rarely. And so that's why I think we see this kind of jadedness in macro debates, simply because the evidence is worse. Let me push back on that a bit. Um, 
and I, when I disagreed or challenged Angrist, I used that Sims article and the, and Edward, Ed Lemer also wrote a, a similar uh, critique of, of some of the confidence that the uh, credibility revolution claims that maybe it's misplaced. But well, well can I can I interject a yeah, second sure. here? Lemer's Lemer's paper is showing why um, natural experiments are not as good as lab experiments, which we we know we and we definitely know that. Um, and he's right about that. And um, that doesn't mean they're no good. It just means that they're not as good as lab experiments and, and never really will be. So, I think but he's, anyway, okay. he's less, he's much less um, friendly than that, I think, to the uh, Angris claims. His claim is basically, you think you've done something to insulate yourself from the problems of uh, that he identified in his take the con out of econometrics paper, but he's, he basically concludes by saying, not really. So, well, we'll post those articles and people can take a look at them. And they're, much of them are readable to a non, uh, a technical reader. You can, you can enjoy the fireworks, I think, especially no matter what. Right. Um, and those are some great papers. Those are two of the best philosophy of science papers, I think, ever in economics. Those, those two papers, the, um, the credibility revolution paper and Lemer's critique of that are super good reading for anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. They're they're really interesting. But the point I want to challenge you on is this issue that you can't get a clean experiment. So it's true you can't get as clean an experiment across space, but you still could get, in theory, a clean experiment across time, which is why I think the printing press example is a good one. The one I like to point to being a non-Keynesian uh, is the conclusion of World War II. A lot of, of economists, a lot of Keynesian economists, and most prominent being Paul Samuelson, said that the end of World War II would lead to a devastating uh, depression if the United States let military spending fall dramatically as it normally would at the end of a war. It had reached a very high level, you know, an historically high level, and his worry was is that the end of the war would lead to a disastrous economy. He said – he basically, he implied it would be worse than the Great Depression. And he was writing this in 1943. The war ended in 1945. There was no – Attempt to cushion the blow. Nobody listened to the Keynesians, or if they did, they couldn't get their policies implemented. And as a result, uh, the end of World War II brought a massive decrease in government spending, an enormous increase in the number of people suddenly looking for work. And um, there was basically nothing happened. There was no real dramatic anything. And that's that, not quite true. There, there was a there was a very deep, very sharp recession right after the end of World War II. Uh, it was a recession that was not. Uh, called there was a, I would say it differently. There was a sharp drop in measure GDP that the NBER did not call a recession. There was no sharp increase in unemployment. Uh, there was a recession, I think, in '47 or '49, but nothing of the magnitude that had been predicted, and certainly not even clearly related to the change in in military spending. Uh, the, you know, the change in measure GDP. You have all kinds of problems. You've got uh, changes in the removal, I think, at that point of wage and price controls, uh, all kinds of other reason, things going on. I don't remember what the reasons were that the NBR didn't classify that drop as a, as a recession. And maybe I'm wrong about that. We can certainly look it up uh, in more detail and fight over that if, if we had the charts in front of us. But I want to give that – just sticking with the theoretical question now, um, that was a natural experiment. It It – didn't shake, interestingly, uh, very much of the Keynesian religion that people held. And I went back for fun and looked at the American Economic Review and the Journal of Political Economy, two of the more prominent uh, economic journals of the day, and what people wrote at the time. And it's amazing how easily they shrugged that off if they were on the Keynesian side. And similarly, I'll pick on my side now, um, the, the largest increase in the balance sheet of the Fed – my side being I'm something of a monetarist, uh, trained in Chicago. The balance sheet of the Fed went from $800 billion to $4 trillion. And every economist, uh, on quote, my side, said that's going to cause massive inflation. And nothing happened. Um, now, they would say, well, just, it just hasn't happened yet. And that may be true. I'm willing to cut them some slack. But I think they should also consider the possibility that their understanding of the relationship between the Fed's balance sheet – Velocity and the level of prices might be um, imperfect. Right. 
And uh, I think, you know, these are good. And this, this is how knowledge in macro really does progress uh, to the extent that it does. Um, you have some theory where some people make some pretty bold claims. And I think monetarism makes some pretty bold claims and Keynesianism makes some pretty bold claims. And these, a lot of times you have uh, these situations where the bold claims make some strong predictions and they don't pan out. In fact, I can't really think of any theories that made these bold claims that ended up not having such cases where they didn't pan out. <laughs> um, and they all, they all have big problems. I mean, um, and if you tried to fit these things to past data and you, um, and you tried to do some rigorous statistical tests, they would be rejected. Even if you let your theory be the null hypothesis, which is cheating, you still can't get these things. I mean, they'll all be rejected. Um, and so the the question is, so, so macroeconomists have basically retreated mostly to using these things as, um, as thought experiments or the, the sort of weaselly phrase that people will use is, ah, they, they organize our thinking. They're well, a map between assumptions and a, conclusions. And, but I'm a big fan of that are, phrase. And are, I think that's that's where economics has its, has most of its power. But I, I, I don't – do you really think it's true that most macroeconomists concede that – let's take the more prominent uh, Keynesians and monetarists and anti-Keynesians and anti-monetarists. Do you think they'd say, well, you know, we really don't have much evidence for our views. It's all uh, – it's not a bunch of complicated – it's really too complicated to try to tease out any of these effects. So we're just kind of stuck. With what? Uh, I don't know. Well, there's always going to be true believers. I mean, there are there always going to be true believers. I think that that I have observed that there are often true believers. Um, my PhD advisor Miles Kimball really believes that if you just take interest rates negative enough, then you'll you'll get your um, you know your your uh, big output boost. And I think that. So far, we haven't really seen much evidence in, in favor of that. Interest rates are going somewhat negative in Europe right now, and we're not there, – there's no obvious boost from it. But, um, but you know – I don't know his work. I don't know his work, but you know what he'd say. And I know what more. he'd say. They just didn't go negative just enough. Just do more. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I can't tell him that he's wrong. I, I'm highly skeptical that he's right. And of course, Miles is an extremely good guy. He's a he's a true believer in this kind of theory without being ideological about it at all. Um, so so actually, that's what's interesting. You know, Miles is sort of my counterexample, one of my counterexamples, the, the most extreme counterexample to this idea that everyone's really ideological when you get right down to it. Miles is almost pathologically uh, non-ideological in his ability to separate his his sort of desires of how the world should work with his assessment of how the world really does work. Uh, he's, he's really good at that, better than, than most. And I think that he would be a great guest for Econ Talk in the future. Uh, you can sort of see what I'm talking about. Uh, of course, that degree of, you know, personal objectivity, if you want to call it that, is rare. I haven't seen that. He's an extreme example, but I think... Um, He's a, he's a big counterexample to this idea that everyone in the end, you know, or maybe just in macro, really, really just comes down to their ideology. So that's you can have strong priors. You can, you can be a true believer in a theory without, you know, having any interest, without, without having a, a political ideology like small government, big government, you know, help this group of people, help that group of people, et cetera. You can still have very strong belief that this theory will work. Absolutely. Yeah. So – Although, having said that, there aren't – well, I'm not going to go down that route. I was going to talk about interface between macroeconomic ideology and philosophical ideology. I think that's that's a – let's stay away from that swamp. But I, I want to go back to our original question. So I don't think economics is much of a science. You seem to think it is something of a science. But you've now said that in the in half of the field – some would say 80%, some would say 10%, but I'll say half just to make it simple, which is macroeconomics. It's really – there's not that many natural experiments that allow us to tease out the real cause, causal relationships and design policy accordingly. So that leaves us with microeconomics. So what about – what are the natural experiments – I want to pick on the minimum wage partly because it's such a hot hot button topic and also there's a huge amount of, of empirical work on there. Do you think we have learned much that's reliable about the impact of a minimum wage increase on employment? 
I think we have, uh, we have. I think that we see that very rarely are the, if we take the size of minimum wage increases that are usually done, they very rarely have a perceptible, significantly, you know, significant, uh, economically significant uh, negative impact immediately on employment levels. So what employment effect they do have is probably over the longer term in terms of things like employment growth. Um, and people can, can, you know, argue about that, but we see that. And, and of course, you know, if you hike the minimum wage to a billion dollars, uh, per hour, you would obviously get huge distorted. I mean, the, the above ground economy would immediately collapse and everything would become black market. And, um, but, but for the types of increases that we tend to see, very rarely is there a large, big, sudden drop in employment. I think that's been a, a pretty reliable conclusion. That doesn't mean minimum wage is good, and it doesn't mean minimum wage doesn't have uh, long-term employment effects, and it doesn't mean that very big minimum wage increases wouldn't have effects, and it doesn't mean any of those things. But it is something. You know, it is it is interesting, and it is something. Until the... Uh, Kruger and Kruger and Card paper of 1994 that suggested that the minimum wage would have little or no effect, and I think possibly even a positive effect on employment. There had been dozens and dozens, maybe a hundred studies that, in the minds of the people who wrote those studies and in the minds of the people who believed them, very powerfully showed that the minimum wage is bad for poor people, that it reduces employment by a non-trivial amount. And there's disemployment as a result. People lose their jobs or will not get jobs. And then there was a change. Uh, that paper came along and it launched a whole literature saying, well, maybe it's not so bad. So as a Martian without – who's just a truth, truth seeker, right? I have no ideology. I just want to know the truth. Um, which of those literatures do I accept? And, of course, there have been many critiques of the modern literature that finds little or no effect. Uh, how do I know which one's right? I mean, you have to look at the methodology and you have to look at the identification strategies. That's what you really have to do. And, you know, the, the better identification is better. How do we tell which is better identification? Well, we've got to make a guess. But, but you notice that's always true in all of, of natural science as well. Um, if you're going to believe the results of an experiment, you've always got to make a leap of faith that all the reasonable stuff has been controlled for. Right, that the experimenter got good controls, and that's um, that's a that's an assumption and a leap of faith that you have to make in every natural science experiment, and it's also something you have to look at in you know natural experiment literature. You just have to say, well, look, this is good identification, this is bad identification. If you go to seminars, that's mostly what people are doing. That's what they're talking about. Um, Could you explain yeah, that for right. the non-technical? Or try, it's a tough question. It's not an easy thing to explain. When you say good identification or bad identification, what, what do you mean? I can explain a, a super, super uh, extreme version of that, right? So suppose we, we um, roll balls down ramps like Galileo did, okay? And we see that there's, uh, you know, that, that balls, of different, um, balls of different weights will still fall at the same rate, will roll down these ramps at the same rate. Okay, we find that out and we conclude there's a law of the universe. Balls always roll down ramps uh, at the same rate, regardless of their weight. And let's say that that is only true in a certain region of the Milky Way galaxy. And tomorrow, our planet, which is always whirling around the center of the galaxy, our planet leaves that region and goes into another region where the laws are somewhat different. And balls actually roll down uh, ramps at slightly different rates. And, um, and then suddenly we redo the experiment tomorrow and everything's completely different. Now, to believe that the first experiment, you know, uh, really told you a law of the universe, you've got to believe that there is such a thing as a law of the universe. And you've got to believe that there was no other funky thing going on in the cosmos that was, that was making your experiment come out one way that might make it come out a different way tomorrow. And that's really the leap of faith you have to make. Now, that's a fun, goofy example in the um, in these economic experiments, what you're really talking about are um, um, basically exogeneity. You're talking about uh, 
is the is the experiment um, is the experiment that I did basically just a purely random variation, or was there some omitted variable that's causing the thing we uh, that's causing the effect that we see? Or is my so is my friend Don Cox, who was the first guest on Econ Talk back in two thousand and six, said talking about the dreaded third thing that there's this the dreaded thing third you thing, didn't yeah. observe. You think there's some correlation between these two that's causal, but there's a third thing that's actually that you didn't either have data on or didn't notice or didn't think about that's really driving things. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Um, but there's always a dreaded third so thing, isn't there? There's always a there. It depends. It just depends on how much dread you have, you know, <laughs> in the rolling balls down ramps. There still is a dreaded third thing. And, and I realized this. Um, do, do you know, uh, do you know the, the emeralds or greener grew paradox? Do you know that one? No. The philosophy thing they ask first year philosophy kids in undergrad. It's the idea that uh, emeralds could be green or there could be another color called GRU, which is green until January 1st, 2025, and then blue afterwards. Uh, no experiment we do today will be able to distinguish green from GRU emeralds, but it might make a difference because come January 1, 2025, all your emeralds might suddenly turn blue. So that if, if you want to be afraid of that, you can be afraid of that. You can never rule it out. Um, there is always the dreaded third thing if you have enough dread. And so really it all comes down to a bunch of sort of grumpy economists in a seminar room yelling, well, I don't think that's clean identification because what about this and this and this, and trying their darndest to think about what that dreaded third thing might be and yes. how plausible those things might be. So I think if you ask me to gamble on whether my emerald was yeah. going to turn blue on January 1st, 2025, I'd ask you what what's the underlying causal – relationship between the date on the calendar and the color of the emerald you'd say well i don't i don't know what it is God. but there could be one yeah. uh and it could yeah. we were just unaware of it we don't have a right. full understanding of color etc but we have a pretty good understanding of color i think that's part of the reason that i um i think it's hard for these empirical techniques to reliably establish uh causal relationships and with any precision about the magnitudes that are involved. So I would you know, it's interesting. I think I would suspect that every economist who is in favor of increasing the minimum wage would concede the possibility and even the likelihood that there would be some employment loss in response to that. They just think it's perhaps smaller than I think it would be. You think that's a fair right. summation? I, that's absolutely fair. And And by the way, as an aside, I'm not really very big on the minimum wage. I don't. I don't think it's that great of a policy at all. I mean, I'm. Uh, I'm not really a fan. I think national minimum wages, especially, are a bad idea. Local minimum wages, certainly, not nearly as bad. But I think that there's just lots better stuff than the minimum wage out there. And um, so, so that's what you're talking to. You know, I'm talking about this empirical literature, but at the same time, it's not really a policy that I do if I were in charge. So let me ask the question a different way. <clears throat> Yeah. Uh, the way I sometimes ask it, can you think of a study that was so decisively performed in terms of the uh, crossing of T's and dotting of I's that the identification and all the econometric challenges were met with such uh, Im impressiveness that people on the other side of the debate had to set, throw up their hands and say, well, I guess I was wrong. I got to change my view because I can't think yeah. of one. I can't think of one. And if that's true. I would suggest that economics has some serious problems in claiming it's a science. And I would say especially, and you, you can rule me out here if you want, but especially about macro. We just had a $800 billion stimulus package that, forget 1945 at the end of World War II, we just had a, a very nice natural experiment. And we can't get people to agree on whether it was successful or not. There are people who say, it was fantastic. It saved us from the Great Depression. There are people who say it wasn't big enough. If it had been, we would have had it bigger. We would have had a better recovery. And there are people who say it's the reason we had a mediocre recovery. They're all really smart people, uh, most of them, the ones I'm thinking of. They're, they have great credentials. They're at great institutions. Some of them have Nobel Prizes. And yet they can't convince each other. Why not? What's going on there? Well, first, before we go on to there, I want to say that 
you know, when you talk about things being a science, my whole point earlier was that even science isn't a science in the way that some people like to imagine that it is. I agree. You have the smartest people. The, the thing I said about maybe balls roll down things differently uh, in a different region of space, that's a real theory. I'm not kidding. That's I didn't make that up, okay, on the spot. That's a real theory. And you had some really smart people saying, well, maybe this theory is right. You have some of the smartest physicists in the world right now who think that in different regions of space, different laws of physics might actually prevail. And this, it's an active debate. You see people on both sides. So, so even science is not quite as is not quite as sciency as people may hope. This shining idealized uh, version of it. You have the smartest people in the world uh, radically disagree on things in physics uh, too. So that maybe the bar for being a science isn't quite as high as people think. Fair um, enough. Good but, point. But as for right, and as for um, as for economics, I think that the thing about the stimulus speaks to the point I was making before, which is that when you, it's not at all clear, the, the stimulus was not a natural experiment at all. It was not randomly decided upon, okay? Um, nor are the variations from state to state necessarily random, which are often used. And um, even the effect of those variations depends on some assumptions about the national level effect too, which again is not a random thing. It's not as if Obama just woke up one day and some quantum state flipped in his brain and he said, let's do an $800 billion stimulus. Um, and then it happened. It wasn't like that. You know, there was, there was a reason why it happened. Um, so if you, you know, if you want to say, oh, we did this whole stimulus and the economy, uh, you know, didn't recover, that's proof. Someone else can say, oh, well, it would have been even worse. And given how bad the Great Depression was, maybe they're right about that. Um, well, and then you have say, some people say, well, that's the reason. They can say the same thing about any empirical study. Uh, very well, rarely do we get a truly that. random uh, imposition. Certainly that would be true of the minimum wage. It's very possible sure, that states that have lots of poverty are more likely to pass them or vice versa, that their labor markets are particularly them. healthy, so they pass them to look good, but they're not really going to have much effect because actually the market clearing wage is well above the wage that uh, that was passed. But going back sure. to my original sure, sure, point, sure. can you name a study that you think people go, well, wow, that one was so good, I have to throw up my hands. I, I give up. Well, well, I don't know about throwing up your hands and giving up. I think um, a lot of people who change their minds will not be despairing or giving up. They'll think, wow, this is cool. Today I learned something. But, but well, That's, that's I what I meant by giving up. Contrast. I'm giving up my old position. I'm doing the old Keynesian thing, which is evidently not really said by Keynes, which is when the facts change, I change my mind, don't you? Uh, right. Evidently that isn't necessarily Keynes's quote, but he gets it gets attributed to him. And so has there ever been a study where people said, yep, I have to change my views now? Well, I don't know, because I haven't done those before and after surveys of economists' opinions. I've seen snapshots through IGM or some of the other surveys of economist policy positions that have been done, but I just don't have the data to answer your question. And I, um, one study that's been quoted to me as a study that made people change their mind was uh, the um, the uh, 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 Cullen and Levitt, and I think there was someone else I hate leaving one person out when I can just remember two, Cullen and Levitt study on the Chicago uh, education lotteries when they randomly let some people go, uh, you know, go to good schools and other people not. And they show that the people who, who go to the good schools don't really show any better academic outcomes, but they do show better behavioral outcomes. And, um, and there's been a couple more studies like that that basically show the same thing since then. Um, that was quoted to me by, by one of my econ teachers as a study that really made him uh, reevaluate his, his ideas. You can easily see a qualitative difference, immediately and easily see a qualitative difference between that kind of lottery experiment and the uh, 2009 stimulus bill. There's, oh, a, there's a qualitative difference. <laughs> In that, and the idea that I'll concede that right, one. The the idea that you'll never, the idea that you'll never convince everyone. I say, well, even in physics, you'll never convince anyone. No, for I, sure. I mean, not. I'm sorry. Even in physics, you'll never convince every single person. Yep. Um, you'll still have that crazy guy, 
Um, maybe at the Steklov Institute, who doesn't believe what you say. Anyway, so, but then um, you have, um, I, it's on a sliding scale that I don't have data with which to measure uh, of convincingness. You know, and and the the stimulus is pretty low on that convincingness scale because it's so non-exogenous. It's obviously so non-exogenous, and those lottery studies are just much higher on the convincingness scale, on the human convincing power of its of its identification assumptions. Um, and I wish I had really good evidence for a whole bunch of studies on how they made economists change their opinion, and I don't. And someone needs to do that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of study where they measure a bunch of people's ideas and then they wait till after some studies and then they measure their ideas again. I don't know how you do that. Uh, someone should be working on this. Um, but I well, think no, that you'd see big that's differences. The, that's the difference between you and, you, and, you and me. I'm pretty confident that that wouldn't decisively determine whether I was right or wrong. I'd, I'd rely on less formal evidence, but I, but I like the claim. I think it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting point. Well, uh, I, I can prove to you that you can never convince everybody. Well, I can that's, program that's a robot that will not be convinced by evidence. Okay, I can program you a, a, a robot that just says, you know, uh, stimulus is awesome, and I can program this robot, and I can even have it tweet, okay, stimulus is awesome, and I can program another robot that says stimulus is terrible, and I can have that one tweet. So you know that there's obviously some sort of being out there, maybe an artificial intelligence that can't be convinced of things. But what does that prove? Well, I'm well, making that shows a much, nothing. It's trivial. I'm making <laughs> so, a much weaker claim. Uh, okay. In the aftermath of the stimulus package and the Great Recession, Richard Posner wrote a piece that got a lot of attention where he said, okay. you know, all my life I made fun of Keynes, but it turns out he was right, more or less. I saw that's, that. that's, yeah. It's not exactly what he said, but it was close. And that's one person. Right. He's not an economist, but he's... He does a lot of economic writing. I'd call him an economist, even though he doesn't uh, have a PhD in economics. So that was interesting. It was brave. Sure. Uh, I didn't find it convincing, but that I wouldn't. Uh, so I'm not saying that – I'm not talking about a case where a study comes along that, do, that convinces everyone. I'm talking about a study that convinces anyone because most studies, my claim is, don't convince anyone. They find what's wrong with it. They find – easily dismiss it because they have priors against it, whether they're ideological or methodological, which suggests that not a very – what I'm really yeah, saying – Well, that's a huge natural experiments, claim. That's not a weak I'm, claim. Right. No, here's what I'm really yeah. saying. Natural yeah. experiments uh, are really good for getting publications in economics journals. They're not so good for convincing people. So it's not that they're not as good as – not quite as good as, as real experiments – it's that they're really only good for generating journal articles as opposed to getting people to go, wow, I never knew that. That's my claim. Wait a second. Okay, back up your claim then. How are you going to back up that claim? Because I don't see a lot of people writing about the fact, other than Poser, which is kind of like an exception that proves the rule. Someone who writes an article, says at a workshop, uh, blogs, that says, you know, I always thought that um, – the public school system was awful. But now after that study of its efficacy, I'm wrong or vice versa. I've always been a big critic of the public school system. But now that I see these results, I have to admit I'm wrong. I don't see that ever. And especially well, I don't see what it. What about me? I have, I have changed my mind in response to, to some of these studies, including a lottery study I just talked about, the Colin and Levitt and possibly yeah. someone else. I forget. And what did you change? Study. Your, so what did you change your mind about there? I thought that uh, being able to go to a really good school be, or, or a school of your choice would result in improved academic performance. I really thought that that would have been true. I was astonished when I saw that result, and it, is, it has changed my thinking on the, on the, uh, on the topic. It, so, so you've just seen N of one. Okay, <laughs> I a changed. Start. That it's changed a my mind. It, <laughs> it changed my teacher's mind, I think he said, and it definitely changed my mind. I, I was like, what, really? But you, you, I just couldn't. You know, so he's going to buy a, I mean, a house I, in a poor part of town because uh, it's foolish to pay a premium to be in a good school district. No, because you you know you get other you things might look with bad. It. You might get robbed. Yeah, people might not want to come there. It's a cheap shot. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Um, sorry, I, you, uh, I was in serious mode. So yeah, I no, I was too. But, um, but I'm making the point. I, I, I understand it's not a, it's not a, uh, a true test of convinced or not. Are there people who are really going to change their behavior toward raising their own kids because of this? Um, maybe there are. I, I think following seeing that study, I've certainly thought more about the importance of self-education, self-study, parental uh, guidance for teaching and, and, and um, natural ability too, to be honest. No, I, um, and I these, can that. So, yeah, no, I concede your point in the, and I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll make your point a little stronger. Uh, I'll, I'll use myself as an end of maybe two, maybe I'll, maybe right. I'll add tier one, which is, you know, I always thought that that's, that education was really important. Uh, being exposed to the ideas of Brian Kaplan, uh, as a colleague and here as an econ talk guest, I'm more open to the possibility that schooling is mainly signaling, that the higher wages associated with schooling are really a result of, of uncontrolled uh, variables that are person-specific rather than related to the education itself. So I'm making a similar point to what I think your your teacher is agreeing to. It's not a core position, though. It's not really... My worldview doesn't hinge strongly on that. So I can, I can live with that. That one's not so bad. I'd like to see a Keynesian say, I'm really disappointed in this. Or a monetarist say, I'm really disappointed in this. Or an Austrian say, you know, the evidence just isn't there. I'd say it's just hard. It's hard for us to concede those things. And some of it just, it's like logic. Well, you just, you just talked about Posner, though. That's one. You just you. I mean, I right. So so your your incredibly strong claim that no one changes their mind has been disproved by Posner three times. Um, you, me, and, and and Dick Posner. Right. I would I would cite um I would cite I, I don't want to put words in his mouth here, but I would cite uh, Steve Williamson as another example. You know, Steve Williamson in in 2011 was talking about how quantitative easing put us in great danger of inflation, and by 2012 had essentially invented neo-fisherianism, which is now you know, gaining a little bit of credence in some corners of, uh, of the macro world. Um, and so, so Williamson had a pretty, uh, a pretty big change based on, on the fact that inflation didn't materialize after quantitative easing, and he even came up with a new theory to, uh, to explain that change that has now become at least somewhat popular. Uh, some people have lat latched onto that. Um, um, John Cochran and, and some others have have expounded upon that, expanded upon that. Um, and so, I would I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I would offer him as as n of of maybe four here. So so we're already accumulating a number of people who have changed their minds about stuff, even in macro where it's hard, where it's a lot harder. You know, I mean, I think I I, I keep thinking these these micro experiments are a lot better and more convincing. Um, typically than macro stuff, but you know, even in macro, we're we're looking at some some big changes of people who didn't obviously change their ideology. You know, Steve Williamson didn't go from from hating inflation to loving it overnight. Correct. You know, um, Posner didn't go from wanting big small government to wanting big government overnight uh, for for some other reason. You know, these aren't obvious big ideological or political ideological changes driving these changes of opinion um on macro i never held very strong priors on anything ever before so you won't find me changing those non-strong priors very much um uh i was so uncertain to begin with uh i guess hence the name of my blog but um but anyway <laughs> but but i think you do see some of these these things where these people really change their mind based on, on so, something they see occur let me try to clarify what I'm saying here, just uh, and then we can move on. But I'm, yeah. I, we all understand that when you have a vested interest in a particular intellectual viewpoint, that it's hard to concede that your life's been a failure. So it, it, it's really it, it would be very unusual for an economist who had spent his or her life as a Keynesian to say it was all a lie, or vice versa, not an, a monetarist to say it's all a lie. But just for psychological reasons, we understand that. What, what I'm really so the fact that most people don't change doesn't really prove my point. What I'm trying to say, and I'm not saying it terribly well, what I'm trying to say is that it depresses me greatly how hard it is to provide empirical evidence that would cause a reasonable person to change his or her mind. Because I think it's 
almost by definition in macro. And I'm going to push. I'm going to. I'm going to make an even harder case for you to defend. I don't think it's just a macro problem. I'll, let's let's take the example of um, of deworming, which has been a big issue recently. We talked about it in the episode with William McCaskill on effective altruism. You know, big scientific claims that the way to make the world a better place is to to deworm African school child, African children and other poor children who have parasites in their system. And that was based on a natural experiment. And then it turned out maybe it wasn't so reliable. It didn't scale. It didn't work here. It didn't work there. And it got some benefits, but the benefits in terms of improved educational and school performance are, are, are very much in question. So I think it's just a general problem that in complex systems, it's very hard to to find uh, reliable results. That's that's really because claim. of that because of that example of, of one experiment that didn't end up holding up when people looked at it more carefully. Well, I Just guess I, one, I, I, one, touche, one, I mean, touche most except, aren't going to hold up. You know? Well, touche, except for most the fact that, hold up. that Brian Nozick was on the program a few weeks ago, and it's 60 percent of psychology experiments that don't hold up. So, you know, one experiment I think it's, is that social psych. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I would I would protest. My dad's a cognitive psychologist, and apparently, uh, only um, only forty percent of cognitive psych experiments didn't hold up. So he was <laughs> very true. proud about. <laughs> but okay, so so I, I've seen people are starting to do the same uh, test with economics, and they find similarly large ratios of of studies not holding up. Um, that's fine because you know science is a is a process. And, and evidence proceeds by accumulation. That's also true in physics and chemistry. Um, you had, uh, even on like the charge of the electron, you had to get lots and lots of experiments before people fixed on what they really believed in was the charge of the electron. And um, you, people were probably fudging it at the time and, and people were yep. making some mistakes. So, so you have to, it, it's, a, it's an iterative process. If you talk about these single thunderbolt studies that really change your thinking, yes, they exist, but more really what's much, much more common is an accumulated weight of studies that all seem to kind of have consistent results. You, you make a little tweak, you study it, you use a slightly different data set, you use some slightly different identifying assumptions or methodologies, and you look in a slightly different environment or for slightly different numbers, and you see something different. Or you see basically the same kind of thing. And so... Um, sometimes you don't see the same kind of thing and you just say, well, we don't really know what's going on. Let's go work on something else. Uh, who knows? Um, let's go for a beer. Uh, or then sometimes you, you get this big accumulated weight of evidence where everybody kind of says, okay, now we all sort of agree that this is right and this is wrong because we've all seen a million studies saying it. So, so, you know, don't, uh, don't rely too much on these Thunderbolt studies, even, even though sometimes they do exist, but they're pretty rare um, oh, I wanted to, to show you N equals five on macro. I have a really good example that I forgot about completely that I just remembered. Can I give it? Yeah, sure. All right. Bob Lucas, Robert Lucas, most influential macroeconomist possibly ever, I'm going to say. Um, the last, certainly the last 40 years, 35 years. Certainly, certainly. A very, um, a very uh, aggre intellectually aggressive and sometimes even polemical guy if you read his papers or if you meet him, um, he, uh, he um, has said some things in a Q&A in &A once that might have to be edited from your show. But Robert Lucas wrote, um, and I, I can get you the site on this very easily, that uh, up until the early 80s, he had believed that recessions were caused by monetary shocks, by nominal shocks, he called them. Um, and that was supported by his own you know, um, uh, Lucas Island's model, Lucas supply function kind of stuff, which I'm sure you, you know. Yep. And then he said, however, uh, Prescott managed to convince him that most recessions were due to real shocks. So basically real business cycle guys convinced him and changed his mind. And he said, then after the great recession, he decided that financial shocks must be a really big, important thing as well. And he wrote this down, and I'll find you the site uh, for this. Um, and uh, and he, he chuckles because, you know, he's looking at how his own opinions have changed. But his Robert Lucas, who whose life's work was definitely invested in some of these models. You know, it was first, you know, the, the Lucas Islands model, Lucas supply function was a huge part of his life's work. 
then later on, you know, he really did a lot to help the real business cycle people, even though he's not always cited as one of the pioneers of it. He really was. Um, and then, you know, that those are models without financial shocks. And now he comes out and says, well, OK, after the Great Recession, now I believe financial shocks are a big deal. So even Robert Lucas, who had his life's work tied up in some of this stuff, uh, you know, who, um, you know, has changed his mind now twice and is, and is willing to admit it. I think it's worth it twice. So I, I think when he was younger, he was even more uh, he was in a different place. But um, right. I, I take your point, and I, I would say, uh, although Lucas gets a lot of criticism from uh, people on the other side of the ideological fence, uh, I had him for my second macro class in and third macro class in graduate school. And I didn't become a macroeconomist, but his passion – for understanding how the world works was very inspirational to me. And it's, um, I think he's, uh, I think his intellectual integrity is very inspiring. So I, I certainly would never want to suggest, uh, I think your, your example is a great one. And I think he's actually deeply interested in how the world works. Um, and I think all, most academics are. I just think we have a problem, which is that our, Philosophical viewpoints and the very nature of economics just makes it difficult to to see what's actually going on. And I, to some extent, I think we're all in the dark. We have some basic principles that are reliable in various settings about incentives and markets and and uh, and how the world works, but it's very imperfect. And a part of what we're disagreeing about here is just a question of degree. Uh, I, I, I t- let's go. Let's come full circle because we're out of time. And you started off by saying that the most ideological people get most of the attention uh, and enjoy the attention, and I think that's true. I think, I think deep down, most economists, when pressed, and I have no empirical evidence for this, so don't ask me for a cite. It's just <laughs> armchair. It's armchair theorizing. Okay. I think deep down we will admit when pressed that our knowledge is not as uh, reliable as we sometimes talk about it as being so uh and i'll give you the last word and then we'll close go ahead i i i think that if deep down if when pressed we will admit that deep down we're less certain that's a good thing um and that means that (laughs) ideology maybe hasn't totally blinded us to the facts and evidence so hasn't totally blinded us to what to the facts and to the evidence you know if if deep down you know i mean our, our egos and our natural love of arguing and things like that and our vestedness in our life's work, whatever, all these things, media attention, press us toward expressing great certainty, putting forth things with great force, smacking down the enemy. But if when pressed in private, deep down, we'll admit that we really are less certain than we think, that's a good thing. And that shows that shows that that maybe people are looking at the facts and the evidence you know, in private a little more than they'd be willing to admit in public when engaged in these sort of contentious debates. My guest today has been Noah Smith. Noah, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you so much, Russ. It was great. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.